chapter 5, 1 Peter um, chapter 5. We are finishing our series in 1 Peter tonight. We began this series 19-ish weeks ago, um, and uh, so we've been in 1 Peter for a while, and it's been a, it's been a joy, but I'm also excited um, to finish and just hear uh, Peter's encouraging words at the end of this letter. But by, uh, by, while you're doing that, just let me give a couple of just housekeeping things so you know. Um, December 15th, that's a Sunday. December 22nd, that's also a Sunday. And December 29th, which is also a Sunday, we will not have 6 o'clock service. 4 o'clock service only. That really applies to you who are here at 6 o'clock. So December 15th, beginning December 15th through the rest of December, we'll only have our 4 o'clock service. Um, and then we will... Um, yeah, we just won't have 6 o'clock service. So I want to make sure I said that before I forgot uh, so that you were just aware of that. Let me also, because we are kind of ending this series, I want to kind of give a roadmap for the days to come, um, uh, series-wise and where the Lord's leading us, and which I'm also really excited about. Next week, uh, Nick Nahal will be preaching in my absence. I'll be out of town, and so Nick's going to be preaching. If some of you know him, some of you don't know him, You'll have the joy of meeting him. And then the week though after that, we'll begin a new series, a three-week series that will pretty much go up until Christmas, um, which I think the weeks will be December 1st, 8th, and 15th. We're going to do a series um, that is revolving around what we call here at New Hope, uh, Measures of a Disciple. Now, this is new language. This is part of last January and February, we rolled out a vision series and part of that vision that we emphasized was kind of this holistic idea of our mission, which was to engage our city with the love of Jesus one relationship at a time. That we recognize that God has called us to a city, that he's called us to this city, whatever city you're in. For us right now, we are in Queens, but many of you don't live in Queens, and so we recognize that whatever your city is your city. But we are engaging this city, New York City, we're engaging Long Island, we're engaging these areas uh, with the love of Jesus, and we're doing that one relationship at a time. We're recognizing that this is an incredible vision that we want to be a part of seeing God's kingdom advanced. But we also recognize that that is big and that's holistic, but it begins with one relationship at a time, that relationships matter. And so we talk about those things, uh, relationships to one another, relationships to our community. But in the idea of a vision specific, and I'll, I don't want to preach the message, so I'm just going to breeze by it for a second. But the measures of the disciple is what we are becoming. In the sense that Philippians chapter 1, um, uh, Paul is writing and he's saying, I'm writing and I'm praying and I'm hoping these things come true so that you may be blameless before Christ. Meaning he has clearly given a vision for the church of their sanctification and where they grow in the relationship with Christ. And he calls it blameless. And so it's the measure and the standard and the character that he's calling you to. And for us here at New Hope, we've never really laid that out, but we will in this coming series. But it is represented by these three banners on the wall. And we believe that a mature believer in Christ is living daily. They're living surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. They're living surrounded by a community of faith, and they're living sent in the world around them. And so the first three weeks of December, we will walk through some of those things, and we'll talk about that, and we'll, we'll apply those to our lives. And then we'll do Christmas, December 22nd, and then December 29th. But then in January, we're starting a year-long series that we're just simply calling the Story of Scripture. And we as a church are going to challenge and walk together in our community groups, as well as individually in our time on Sunday we're going to walk through reading all of Scripture together, and we're going to talk about it each and every Sunday night, recognizing that in my two years pastoring here, 
one of the common things I'm noticing in conversations is people understand certain aspects of Scripture really well, but they don't understand how that fits with this and this fits with that. And just to, it's hard to kind of see it all together. And so we're going to take it holistically from a 30,000-foot view, if you will, walking through Scripture as we read it and talk through it so that we can better understand the story of God's redemption of mankind that has played out in our lives today. So I'm really excited about that. That will begin in January. But for now, tonight, we're in 1 Peter chapter 5. And so if you're with me in 1 Peter chapter 5, would you simply just say amen? And we're going to begin reading in verse 6 through the end of the uh, letter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Today, I just want to walk through specifically verses 6 through 11 primarily as a challenge and as an encouragement as Peter ends this letter. So if you got a handout, you were given a bulletin when you came in, hopefully, and in that there's a handout, announcements one on one side, sermon notes on the other. But truth number one, if you want to fill it in, is simply the text calls us to be humble. I want to go back and read 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, which begins this thought that we see played out in verse 6. But verse 5 says this, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you. So now he just went, he went from younger to all of us. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is truth number 1 in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What does it mean to be humble? What does it mean to be humble? I've heard definitions in contrast with pride. Pride is, by definition, I guess, thinking really highly of yourself. I would even go as far as uh, treating yourself as the God of your life. I would go as far as worshiping yourself. And pride is this just belief in this understanding that we don't need God, that we can do it on our own. And so if, if that's the case, humility would then... And kind of default, as I've heard in many definitions, is, is thinking lowly of yourself. Pride is thinking highly of yourself. Humility is thinking lowly of yourself. My concern with that definition in and of itself, though, is if we're not careful, we might be communicating that to, humility is to be uh, of low self-esteem or to be condescending towards yourself or be of someone who is self-deprecating always yourself. And I don't think that's what humility is. I don't think humility is this idea that we are, that we have, uh, or we're just discouraged, that we think nothing of ourselves and we're just the scum in, in that sense. I don't think it's referring to that type of lowliness, but I would argue that humility, and I like this definition that I've heard, humility isn't necessarily thinking low of yourself, but it's not thinking of yourself at all. 
And it's recognizing in contrast specifically with the text. And we'll talk about it. Verse 7 will lay it out for us. But in this moment of sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, it really was a moment where we traded humility for pride. It was a moment where Adam and Eve, recognizing God's command not to do something, hearing the devil, the serpent, which comes up in our passage in verse 8, the devil, the adversary, came into Adam and Eve, and they, he tempted Adam and Eve. And in this moment, they said, you know what? God's told us to do this, but I really like what the devil, the serpent said. And so, you know what? I think what's best is if I do things this way. And in this moment, they traded humility of being empty before God, which was then brought about full dependence upon God and surrender to Him. And in a sense, they said, you know what? We can answer this for ourselves. And then pride stepped in in this moment where they replaced God as God of their lives and they replaced themselves in that place. And they chose what was best for them. And so in this statement, verse 6, humble yourselves, what does that mean? How, how do we do that? Is it this moment where we just wake up and say, this morning, I'm going to be humble. And in fact, I'm going to be the humblest person this world's ever seen. I'm just going to be so humble. And if you listen to that statement, you realize that's actually a very prideful statement. You get that right? So, so how does this work, this humility of going, I'm just going to, I'm going to try really hard at being good at being humble, which is very prideful. I, I don't know that's fully how it works. But there is this call to humble ourselves, to position ourselves, to take a step of something in some way. And it says this, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. What's this idea, the mighty hand of God? I can't help but to picture that humility is this picture of me emptying myself of me and that, so that Christ can fill me up. But this text would go further to give a visual of it's not just me choosing to empty myself, but it's under God's sovereign and mighty hand that in his love and grace, he is pressing me out of me so that he can fill me up with him. See the visual, see the idea. What does it mean to be humble? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And I believe verse 7 is actually given an explanation of how we do this. We do this by casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What is it when you and I choose to hang on to our anxieties? What is it when we say, you know what, this isn't a situation that's going on in my life. But in, instead of trusting God with it, I'm going to hang on to it because I believe I'm the best person to solve this problem in my life. I believe it's, it's me. I'm what's best to bring a solution to this. That, that I, I really know what's going on. I know what's going on in this situation. Therefore, it's what I think is best based off all these things. I will decide what it's doing is the opposite of verse 7. Instead of casting all your anxieties on him, instead you're hanging on to it because what you're ultimately saying is you believe in pride you're the best person to solve this problem. Recognizing the context of First Peter, Peter is writing to Christians in persecution and are suffering. And for us, we may not be in the exact same situation where our suffering is coming from our faith. Many of you do know that though. But some of us, we don't necessarily are suffering because of our faith, but we're suffering for other reasons. But still, the principle would still apply 
as we think about trusting God in our moments of suffering and recognizing that will we be the ones to say that we can solve this problem or can we trust God? I think of it in this similar way. One of the things that it took me a few years as a husband to understand is that when my wife came and talked with me and would share something with me, I just assumed she was telling me this because she wanted me to fix this problem. So I I didn't even consider she just wanted to talk to me, right? I had a learning curve when I first got married. I I just assumed she's telling me the situation because she wants me to solve the problem. And I had to learn over time that she... That she had, to, she had explained to me, no, Jonathan, I'm sharing this with you because I just want to talk with you. As a pastor, one of the things um, that is uh, uh, difficult for me at times is I have that same reaction when you come to me at times. And as the joy and the privilege of being your pastor, I get to hear a lot of what you're going through. And the difficulty of it. And me immediately, want to ha- I want to have a solution. I want to have an answer. I want to solve your problem. But the truth is, I've recognized as a pastor, I've recognized as a husband, I've recognized as a person that ultimately our anxieties is we are not the God of our anxieties. But instead, we must humble ourselves. And sometimes our only hope, our only option, our recognizing that we have a loving God who cares for us. Therefore, we can trust Him with our anxieties. And therefore, we give it all to Him. This is what it means to humble ourselves. To go, I, I can't be God, I can't be the God of my salvation. My works and my deeds will never be good enough to save myself. I can't solve this problem, whatever it may be. Now, there are some practical problems we can solve. Um, For example, if I keep going into debt because I buy things, I could solve that problem. You get the point. Like, there are some things. But I'm talking the things that are greater and out of our control. But yet, we still in pride believe we can just step in and solve them. But, But we see here... That we come in humility, we lay ourselves before God, trusting Him as a good, as a good God. We trust Him. Now, I want you to get this, because I'm playing this off of Genesis three a minute ago. What was the serpent tempted Adam and Eve by saying, "If you do this, you will become like God." That you can't trust Him. What He said, "Don't eat of this fruit." You can't trust that because if you do that. He knows that you'll become like him and you'll know things that you didn't know and you'll be like him and he's trying to hold out from you. What was this serpent trying to do? He was trying to tell them that he doesn't care for you. He doesn't have what's best for you. And I want you to know that in pride we bind that lie all the time of believing that God, doesn't try, that God doesn't care for us ultimately and therefore we must be the God or prideful in some way. But instead, humble yourselves before him recognizing he is a good God. He can be trustworthy, and He cares for us. This is important as we move to truth number two, which is this, to be watchful. Truth number one, be humble. Truth number two, be watchful. And this is important because it is recognizing that when we, in verse 9, let me just read it, and then I'll explain it. Verse, or excuse me, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that in the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Subpoint to truth number two, the first one is A, respect him. He is dangerous. So when I talk about how truth number one comes into truth number two, here's how it goes. It's because when humility, we are emptied of ourself, that true humility is this moment where I am not thinking lowly of myself. I'm not thinking of myself at all. I've been emptied of me so that Christ can fill me. And it's in that way that we are then able to step into the battle that is raging in the world in which we live in. 
the spiritual battle that we are raging, that we are to be watchful, and we must respect our enemy. And I, didn't, I want to be careful what I mean by respect. I'm not talking about revere in the sense of worship, but I am talking about respect in the sense of recognizing that we have a formidable enemy. We have a formidable uh, uh, um, uh, adversary, uh, the devil, and recognizing that we must respect him and go that if we are trying to engage this battle, this spiritual battle against a roaring lion who's seeking to devour us, and if we do this in pride in our own strength, then you and I will not be able to stand. But in humility, we recognize that we empty ourselves of us, we fill ourselves with the victory of Jesus, who And once again, I'm using language because there's not perfect language to explain the beauty of what happens when Christ redeems us and saves us and fills us. And Scripture does say, do not quench the Spirit, but be filled with the Spirit. And so there is this language that we are to be filled with Christ on a daily basis. And it's when we are filled with Him, emptied of us, filled with Him, we've cast it all, we've surrendered to Him, then we are able to step into a battle that has already been won. My pastor said it last week when he was preaching, and I've said it because I've heard him say it many times, that we are not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory. But if you and I are fighting in our own strength, then we are not respecting the enemy and recognizing that we don't have victory over the enemy, but Christ is the victorious one over the enemy, and we respect the enemy by first preparing ourselves by being humble and filling ourselves with Christ. This may be an overstatement, but maybe not, but one of One of the pastors that I love to read is a a man by the name of Ian Bounds, and he made this statement in one of his books, In the Power of Prayer. He said this, that if I don't get up and spend two to three hours with God every single morning, then the enemy will have victory in my life that day. And I was like, whoa, hopefully you're overstating that a little bit. Hopefully, if not, we all need to get up earlier tomorrow morning, right? Two to three hours, but here's the point. I don't think the time was his point. The point was the enemy is... He is a powerful one that we must respect in the sense of that we must come prepared for battle, filled with the Holy Spirit, that we must surrender to him on a daily basis. As a basketball player, as a basketball coach with sports, I found myself in a situation a lot of times against an opponent who I was like, ah, I can beat them in my sleep, right? That, that, that we overlook them because we're like, they're, they're, they're not that good. They haven't won any games, all these things. And then, and then two hours later, I find myself with a loss under my belt. I'm going, what just happened? And the truth is, is that I didn't respect the opponent. In a lot of ways, we respect the opponent, not by revering the opponent, but by surrendering and humbling ourselves before Christ every single day, allowing him to live through us. And so this is what it means to be humble, to then be watchful. We respect him because he is dangerous. Second, we recognize him. Scripture says he is a roaring lion. That, that he is seeking someone to devour. That we've been given the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We've been given the Holy Spirit in us to help us see and understand and recognize what the enemy's doing against us. The schemes of the enemy. We respect him because he's dangerous. We recognize him because he's, he's a great pretender. He likes to kind of steal and he likes to deceive. But the text tells us in verse 9 and thirdly to resist him. Resist him. And how do we resist him? We resist him firm in your faith. Guys, listen to me. It's on the foundation of Jesus Christ that we are able to resist the enemy. And I, I want to I make this as, as clear and as plain as possible that I'm respecting the enemy by recognizing that I cannot defeat the enemy. But praise be to God that Christ came and willfully gave his life as a ransom and the victory of the enemy. 
that is this moment when he stepped in. It's the beauty of Mark and Matthew when they record Jesus' first words in preaching. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That Christ is ushering in his kingdom and a victory. And I believe he's referring primarily, it is physical, absolutely, but he's referring to a spiritual reality that is happening and that it culminates in Christ's uh, uh, death and resurrection. That in the moment that he was resurrected, Ephesians 1 and 2 would go on to tell us that when Christ was raised from the dead and was seated at the right hand of the Father, that he was placed above all rule and authority, power and dominion, not only in this age and in the age to come. It was in that moment of resurrection that he is the victorious one. Therefore, we resist the enemy by standing on the firm foundation of Christ, firm in our faith. That we trust, we believe, we give it all to him. We do not resist the enemy just with our own tactics, even though that's part of it. But ultimately resist the enemy because of our humility and dependence upon God and the firmness of the faith that he implants in us through God's word and through the gospel and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So we're humble, we're watchful, and then thirdly, it, the text tells us to be hopeful. I want to read verse 10 and following. It says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the domain forever and ever. Amen. I gave an example earlier of, as a pastor, I have the privilege of hearing some of the difficulties that are going on in your life. And I don't have the privilege of being, a, uh, I want to be clear, I don't have the privilege of your difficulties. I don't want those difficulties. I'm not happy about those difficulties. But I have the privilege of getting to be a part of walking with you. And because my tendency is to be a fixer, I want so badly to be able to give you the answer to whatever you're going through. But one of the most difficult things as a pastor I've found is many times I find myself in a situation or you find yourself in a situation, I come into that situation and I honestly don't have a solution. One of the most difficult things is to simply be able or simply to have no answer. I can't tell you how many times I've stood at a graveside or I've stood beside parents or I've stood behind beside whatever situation or I've stood by besides families, I've stood by, beside whatever, and I, I, there was nothing for me to say or to do. But this text here in verses 10 and 11 always gives me an answer, even though it's not the perfect specific answer, it is an answer, and the answer is be hopeful. Why can we be hopeful no matter what situation we're in? Recognizing that Peter is writing to those in a very difficult situation, more difficult than many of us in this room have ever experienced. How can we say, be hopeful? And Peter gives us the answer in fourfold. First, he says, you can be hopeful because we have God's grace. Verse 10 says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace. Listen to me, you and I are hopeful not because of us. Uh, Hopefully we've gotten this tonight. That you and I are not very good at being gods of our lives. We will wreck it up every time. Why? Because we're not God. But God in his grace has called us. He has redeemed us for those who are believers in the room. The God of all grace, because of his grace, we have a life. We have eternity. And therefore, as a pastor walking with you, no matter how difficult the situation is, I can call out and say you can be hopeful amidst the suffering and pain because of God's grace. And second, we can be hopeful because God's grace, because of God's grace, we know we are going to glory. Verse 10 again, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, 
who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Listen to me. I titled tonight's message from grace to glory because we first start as sinners dead in our trespass and sin. But because of God's grace, we are now in the language of first Peter exiles here. Meaning that we are redeemed, but we're somewhat behind enemy lines, if you will, because we're still living in a broken world, waiting for glory. But the promise and the guarantee and the receiving of grace is a promise and guarantee to glory. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. We can be hopeful because we know that there is a glory. And then thirdly, we know this is all tying together. But we all know that our present suffering is only for a little while. Look at it again. And after you have suffered a little while. I want to give a sobering truth. I want to be clear and be faithful to the text. Too many times I've heard someone refer and quote that text as a promise that the suffering you're going through won't last very long on this side of eternity. That you can have hope that the suffering you're going through is just a little while. So a week, a month, God forbid a year, like that's, that's a long time past a little while. And I want, I want you to hear me say that that is not what Peter is saying. Peter is actually referring to a little while in relationship to eternity. He's actually saying a little while in reference to the entirety of your life. You need to hear me say this because God's word does not say that your suffering will end tomorrow unless you go to glory tomorrow. So it might We do have a gracious God, and He might allow our suffering, whatever your suffering, you define it as in your life right now. It might end tomorrow, but there's not a promise. But there is this promise, and it comes with hope, that the suffering that we are facing on this side of eternity, however long it is, is a little while in compared to the glory that has been promised to us because of God's grace. I say that to be faithful to the text but to encourage you that even in moments where you're going, God, I've been dealing with this pain for many, many years. I've been dealing with being ostracized from my family because of my faith for many, many years. I've been dealing with these things for many, many years. When will it end? And the only promise right now that's given to you is one day when suffering is ended from all of creation, will it be guaranteed and promised to end? But why? Why does God not immediately end it now? And this leads us to truth number four, because we know that our trials are building Christian character. This morning in the one you're reading, James chapter one, count it all joy, my brothers, when we meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect. That way you may be complete, lacking in nothing. What does it mean to count it all joys when we meet trials of various kinds? I don't know about you, but I don't particularly enjoy suffering. But why does James and why does Peter say that we can find joy in our suffering? Because we recognize that God is doing something in our suffering. That the journey is a part of the destination. The journey isn't just a means to the end. It is in and of itself a part of the end. That God is doing a work in our life of bringing us to humility and brokenness and dependence upon him. And he is transforming us and making us into this beautiful masterpiece that is a part of our Christian character. It is this that I refer to in our series coming up, the measures of a Christian. It is the measures and the calling and just some tangible ways in which we want to allow our godly character to be displayed. And our godly character is displayed clearly if we are living surrendered to Christ every single day. 
our godly character is being displayed and is recognized that we're walking with Christ, when we recognize that we are not to live this Christian life alone, the enemy wants to isolate us, to assassinate us, so therefore we get into community and we live surrounded. But then clearly Christ has always saved us to send us, and so therefore Christian character is displayed as we live sin. These are just practical ways, and these aren't exhaustive. But the point is, is that Peter ends this letter explaining that God is working in all of this. This temporary affliction that you can know, you can be hopeful in this temporary affliction that because of God's grace, he's promised you eternal glory. And he is himself, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God's working in your situation. So therefore, be hopeful. I know a lot of times we want to go, God, why? And we want a specific answer. And one of the toughest things as a pastor is I, I don't always have that answer. And God doesn't always give us that answer. But we can know one thing, that God is not allowing us to go through this suffering because he doesn't love us. It's in fact that he loved us, that he himself stepped into suffering. It was that because he loved us, that he himself faced on the wrath and the suffering that you and I deserve so that he could show us grace. We are not in this suffering simply and solely because God doesn't love us. God absolutely loves us. And it's because he loves us so much that he, he, he loves us that he'll save us right where we are. But he loves us too much to leave us there. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, he is pushing us to humility. He is pushing us to dependence upon him so we can stand firm in victory against the enemy. And we can be prepared to walk into eternal weight of glory with him for all eternity. This is the beauty of suffering. I, how, how could his beauty and suffering go together, but somehow it does in God's eternal kingdom? Therefore, I'm grateful and I trust that as God brings suffering, we can be hopeful because of what God's doing. So question I have for you today is, do you know the one in whom you can trust all your anxieties? See, the reality is, is God, there is a God of your life. That you are trusting in something to be your salvation. You're trusting in something to be your God. For, for all of us to some extent before Jesus, it, we would have to define that as ourselves. We'd have to define it in maybe in our religious good works. Maybe we'd have to define it in our giftedness. Maybe we would define that in our careers, our relationships. Maybe we make someone else the God of our life. Many of us may make a spouse or a relationship or a job or a boss or a family member. We may make another person the God of our lives. But the truth is we are all depending upon something in which we can trust ultimately. My question is to you is, is that person Jesus? And if not, I lovingly pray that you would recognize that any other God that you put, little g God that you put in place of Jesus is unable to be the God of your life. He's unable. That, that thing, yourself, some other person, some other belief system is unable to redeem and to save. But Christ is the one and only, according to Scripture, that is able and did what was necessary. John chapter 10, that he is the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for his people. That you have a loving father who cares for you, who laid down his life for you. Therefore, you can trust him. You can humble yourself. You can surrender to him. You can cast all your anxieties upon him. So I ask you this question. Do you know Jesus? Do you know the one who is lovingly want, calling you 
to cast your anxieties upon him. Today, while I was praying, I believe the Lord, for me personally, gave me a visual of this truth that I'm trying to explain. We were here in during pre-service prayer. I was uh, praying. We were praying in this room, and I was just reflecting on uh, the reality that just a, just a few minutes before, I had left and walked down the street because we needed some batteries, and I walked down to the store, and I got some batteries, and it, I just was reminded of how cold it was, right? All of us are about to be reminded of it in about 30 minutes. Reminded of how cold it was. And then I walked in this building, and I was just like, oh, the embrace of the warmth of this building, how beautiful. It's just, this is just great. I never want to leave this room again because it is so warm. Like, I just had one of those moments, and I was reflecting on that, and I just believe the, the Holy Spirit just spoke into my spirit that, Jonathan, people are going to come into this room tonight spiritually in the cold spiritually needing the embrace of Jesus in their hearts. It's illustrative because when I talk about a loving father in whom you can cast all your anxieties because he cares for you, illustratively, it's a picture of recognizing you carrying your burdens that you can't carry. You carrying those weight, you carrying all these things is living out in the cold. And it's the joy of stepping in and trusting him and casting your anxieties upon him is like stepping into the warm embrace of a loving father when you've just been out in the cold. And I want you to see that when I try to describe this, that me personally, it's the best way I can think to describe what Christ has done for me. That I trust him and I depend upon him and that every time he's a loving father who I can cast my anxieties on, it's like the warm embrace that's like coming from outside that room, outside that building to inside this room. Do you know Jesus? Do you know that embrace? For those in here who would say yes to that question, my encouragement to you is, is there anything, even as a believer in your life, that you just know, I, I, need, to, I need to trust Christ with? that I need to let this go, that I need to further depend upon him. If your answer is no to that question, would you just hear the invitation tonight that he is inviting you unto himself? Would you humble yourself before him? As we talked about humility, humbling yourself means you give up all of yourself to all of him. It's not just a statement, yes, I believe in Jesus, although that's part of it. It's not just a prayer, but it's you going, I will empty of myself of me, and I surrender it all to the Lord as Savior. And I pray that if you're honest enough in your heart tonight to go, you know what, I don't know that I know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that your recognition of that means the Holy Spirit's doing a work in your heart, that I pray that you would see that He loves you, but yet He is a holy and just God, and He cannot sweep sin under the rug. And your sin was not swept under the rug, but it was put on the person of Jesus, and that He died for your sins, but you must confess Him as Lord. You must surrender to Him. You must humble yourself before Him. You must ultimately choose Him over yourself as the God of your life. And that's illustrative language to give a picture of what it means. But tonight, would you call upon him as Lord and Savior of your life? And would you enjoy and feel the embrace of a loving father? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are a good father that we can trust. We thank you that we... We thank you that we can cast all our anxieties upon you. We thank you that you have given us victory over the enemy. But we must every single day walk with you. And just spend time with you because we want to, because we enjoy it, because we all those things. But also so that we can walk in victory on a daily basis. 
But when we are in the middle of the battle, in the middle of the suffering, in the middle of the trials, we can always be hopeful because you have given us your grace in the person of Jesus for those that are believers in this room, for those who would call themselves as Christians and followers of you. You've given us your grace and that comes with a promise of eternal glory. It's not an option of eternal glory. It's a promise of eternal glory. We go guaranteed from grace to glory. And that this momentary affliction that's only for a little while does not compare to the promise of that glory. So it's in these moments that we cast it all upon you. We trust you. We walk with you. We give our lives to you. And when our souls out in the freezing cold, we know that there's always an open door. You're inviting us into the warmth of your love, the warmth of your embrace. That unlike I, as an under-shepherd and pastor who is unable to answer and give solutions always to problems, you say, bring it to me. I'm the God of the universe. I can handle it. My answer may be wait. My answer may be you can't see it, but I'm working something great. We may not fully comprehend the answer or understand the answer, but we trust you have an answer, and we trust that answer is for our good and your glory for those who love you. And I love you, therefore I can trust you. I can trust you. I can trust you. So therefore, Jesus, I declare, and I humble myself before you and say, I trust you. And I enjoy the embrace of your sufficient love and care for me. Sufficient. I don't need anything else. I got it all in you. You are my reward. I thank you for that, Jesus. So church family, would you join me in just standing as we spend the time of just worshiping, calling out to him. And would you in this moment, would you worship him and allow him to wrap you up in, your, in his love? And if you're in here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, would you call upon him the Savior of your soul. Would you call upon Him for salvation and say, God, I, I don't know what to say, but I just trust you. I surrender it all to you. Would you forgive me? I confess you as Lord, and I believe in you. And then always, you're always, I would love to hear about that and answer any questions you might have. But in this moment, let's just spend some time worshiping our King together.